Hello, this is Rick Millenthal, and welcome to Voices of Resilience. On this episode, I'm pleased to welcome Edith Corda, our good friend who exemplifies resilience during an inspiring life journey through some of humanity's biggest challenges. Edith, thanks for joining us. You are very welcome and try my best. Now, Edith, my wife Karen and I have known you for a long time. We're so close with your daughter, Doris, and son-in-law, Dan, along with Peter and uh, Beth. We've known you for, for so long as a result. We, we feel like family. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's how we feel. And um, for the last few months, we were worried about you. We weren't able to see you and talk with you and visit with you. And then we, we had that chance last weekend when we were all together. And um, of course, talked about that recently. You've had really some of the most unspeakable traumatic experiences right the day when the stay-at-home order started and this pandemic became apparent. Um, you lost your husband, Peter, of uh, over six decades. Only a few weeks later, losing your eldest daughter, Kathy. It was a very trying, trying period for me. Very unhappy. Yeah, and it would be for anyone. And then, of course, that was compounded by the fact that because of this virus, you couldn't be with outside your immediate family, uh, friends and community and uh just be able to grieve in a manner like everybody else. Right. And then we saw you, and of course, that was weighing on you, but you were talking to us about the future and talking about getting back to your home where you retired in Hilton Head. Karen and I kind of looked at each other and said, Edith Corta is the best story of resilience that we've ever heard. And that's when I asked you to join me on this because, as we know, your story of navigating these challenges began right from the beginning when you were born in Hungary and what you faced there. Well, thank you very much. Um, it is true that I'm a survivor. It's very true. I lived some very difficult times. Surviving the Nazis was the doing of my parents who did all the right things to save my brother. I had one brother five years older than I am and all of us survived. My parents were survivors too, and their goal was to save the family, and they did. You're talking about in Hungary, when the Nazis came to control. How old were you then? I was born in 1931. So during the war, I was a child. I very clearly remember many, many things. And Hungary was as Nazi as Germany. In some things, they even overdid Germany. It had been an anti-Semitic country in the past, too. And uh, during the war, they killed the majority of the Jewish people who lived there. In the countryside, they practically killed off all Jewish people who lived there. They took them to Auschwitz, Dachau, you name it. And the Budapest Jews, and I was one of them, they had a ghetto that they established, and then they didn't have time at the end of the war to take the ghetto people, the young people they took. But the children and the older people, they didn't have enough time to take them all. And I was lucky enough not to be taken. 
Also, I went to a French boarding school, Notre Dame de Sion. It had been established by two converted to Catholicism Jewish brothers in Paris in uh, at the end of the 18th century. And uh, it was a very exclusive, very expensive boarding school that my parents really could hardly afford to send me there, but they did. And the nuns were hiding me and saved my life. Nuns at the school where you were going was also a convent. It was a convent. It was a convent. And these nuns were absolutely the best people I had ever known. And they were hiding four girls. I was the oldest one. I was 11 when it started. And uh, to the extent that the mother superior of the convent was an aristocratic lady with uh, attitudes and posture and everything belonging to an aristocratic lady. All the nuns were in awe of her. She was the head of this convent. Every single night during the bad times, she, this mother superior, tucked four of us in every evening. I mean, this wasn't a duty. This was very nice. You don't have to tuck in a child at night when you are the princess of an emporium and you go down and tuck in that last little girl, that is a very good thing. I will never forget that. In every way, they were very, very good to us. So I survived. The revolution came later, but during the Nazis, for example, people who had been hiding, there weren't too many because the Hungarian people didn't help that much, but there were people hiding in somebody's home, somebody's house, If the Nazis found them, if the Hungarian police found them, they took them to the Danube. The Danube runs through Budapest and shot them in the Danube. There is an art piece in Budapest along the Danube, on the shore, metal shoes. Little shoes belonging to children, high heels belonging to women, and men's shoes. There is a bunch of shoes showing in honor of the people who got shot. I knew several families who ended up in the Danube being shot. They were really, really bad. Karen and I went to Budapest with your daughter Doris and son-in-law Dan. And we saw those shoes. We saw that art. Did you see the shoes? Absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, we saw the convent that uh, I went to- lived in <clears throat> and saw your neighborhood. Um, It was really one of the most fascinating days, frankly, of our lives to see it. We did think when we saw those shoes and saw that artwork that it did represent people that you knew that perished. People who died there, right. They deported the countryside Jewish people. They ended up in, as I said, in death camps like Auschwitz and Dachau. and, And most of them died. But the Russians were coming, the Russian front was coming close to Budapest and then to Budapest, and they did not have time to deport the Budapest Jews on block. And that's how we survived. The Russians came and and the Russians were, the fighting soldiers, the first ones, were good people. I remember being in that convent, in a classroom, and at the window, And Russian soldiers, this was the first line of Russians, the fighting soldiers. 
were at the other side of the window and they were showing photographs of their children through the glass and brought us food, which was very, very scarce. And that was the atmosphere. Now, the next, next round of soldiers were not so good. And they raped people and they robbed people and they were also terrible. That was when the second or third or whatever round of soldiers came in. They came to the convent and somehow one of them spotted me. I was 13 years old, totally underdeveloped. I was a child. They spotted me and liked me and wanted to take me out. And we had a priest who lived with us who spoke Russian. And with some excuse, he took this soldier outside. I don't know what the excuse was, and talked to him. And during these few minutes, we had a chapel where the, the nuns prayed. They put a nun's habit on me, all black and then the white on the head. And there were 115 nuns living at that time there. Everybody went down to the chapel. Everybody knelt when this soldier wanted to take me out. So did I, in the middle of the nuns. Everybody with boat, head, prayed, and he couldn't find me. And I remember him stand, stopping next to me for some reason. It was just an accident, a coincidence. And I was looking at his boots, and he had a big knife in one of his boots. And then he went on, and I was saved. It was brave for those nuns to, to do this. It was brave for the Mother Superior. It was very, very brave, very brave. And I remember another incident. This was another convent's summer home where all of us went because we were pushed out from their regular house that you saw on the hill. Mm. Some German, I don't know what German, something. That's when this incident happened when the Russians were already in. One of them wanted to take me. Also, there was a gardener who lived in a little house in the park and took care of the gardens. When the siege ended in Budapest, which was after many weeks, and it was a terrible siege, many buildings bombed down, no food, total isolation. When it ended, Hitler did not let the German soldiers who occupied the capital, didn't let them leave. At the very end, they left and they were just walking out and hiding. And one ended up in our park and he was wounded and he knocked on the door of this gardener who lived there and was bleeding. And there was a bleeding man on the threshold and he let him in and I don't know try to help him and the Russians came and found him there and needless to say they shot him they shot the gardener right then and there they came up to the main building and they asked us if we were hiding any Germans and the nuns said no we don't we have, don't know so everybody had to go down we had a basement with concrete walls, I can still see that, concrete block walls, and all the nuns and us four girls were lined up at this concrete wall, facing the wall, and they said that they didn't believe us, that we didn't 
hide any Germans, they are going to search the place. And if they find any Germans, they shoot all of us. And we were absolutely sure some Germans could have snaked in, could have been hiding himself. So we were facing this wall, knowing that if they find a German soldier, they are going to shoot us all. They didn't. We were lucky. We were lucky. But, you know, I was 13 years old. It's an experience to live through things like that. Kind of minimizes many unpleasant things, like you cannot leave your house or this or that, this kind of thing. So it gives you perspective on this virus. Right, you need a perspective. My father was a civil engineer who worked a lot in the country. There was a village where we spent several... During the summer, we always joined him wherever he had his jobs, a little bridge or a power plant. We went back to this village, which was not easy because there was no transportation. Periodically, there was a train just going in this direction or that direction, and people totally filling up the train, including the top of the train. Anyway, so we went back to this village, and my father then worked on the distribution of the landowners' lands. The communists were there, and they distributed all those land. They needed engineers to make to take the measurements and all that. They paid in food, not money. Money was worthless. There was an in, unbelievable inflation going on. But he made enough in food, killing several hogs and uh, grains and whatnot, that we went back to Budapest and we could buy a little apartment for food. And then we moved back. Then I was only, well, I was born in 31, 44, 45. I was 13, 14 years old. And I decided at that age that I wanted to leave that country, that I didn't want to spend my whole life among people who wanted to kill us. That's a very obvious thought. Now, for several years, it was not possible. There was an iron curtain, and we were behind the iron curtain. And the iron curtain was a strip of land. I don't know how wide it was, maybe 60, 70, 50 meters, whatever. The iron curtain was, there were watchtowers, several. They had machine guns. They had dogs. And this land, this strip of land between the two countries, being Hungary and Austria, had been mined. When Stalin died in 1953, they removed the mines. As long as the mines were there, it was impossible to cross it. They had tourist groups from Austria coming to the edge, showing the Iron Curtain, a trip, okay? But they removed the mines. So then it was possible. It wasn't easy to cross it, but it was possible. You didn't get blown up. You could be shot down, but didn't get blown up. According to my will that I'm not going to live there, I wanted to leave. My husband didn't. The main reason was that we had a 13-month-old child, a little girl, and he was very reluctant to take her out to some place where they are shooting, taking the responsibility for her. I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave. And we left. 
We left in the middle of the night. Now we are in a village at the border of Austria and Hungary. We were in a tavern, in a pub, and we proceed to wait there until it gets really dark and that there is a ranger, a little old man, who sometimes takes people across the border. The border is very zigzaggy. You might cross it, and then without knowing it, you might walk back. But this man could show us across. So we waited until it got dark. It was well after midnight. He took us on. He accepted us. We paid him money. And we had to cross a totally open field before we reached Pudoderia. So we ran. I was scared out of my wits. I wanted to turn back. But I was the one who got the family there. But then I acted like a coward. But my husband said, you stay. You wanted to be here. We are going to make it. He showed us not quite to the border, but almost to the border. And there were people shooting around us because some Hungarian people who had guns were fighting their way out, shooting on the left, shooting on the right. We were in a ravine and the baby started crying. And our little guide got totally scared. You couldn't be noisier crossing the border than having a 13-month-old child crying full strength. (laughs) And he said, you just go this way, go ahead. If you go just straight this way, you get to the border and you can cross it. And my husband, for the first time and for the last time in his life, told him that you do that, you leave us here, and I am going to kill you right here and right now. Because we were told not to do it alone. He didn't even have a pocket knife. It would have been very difficult to kill him. But he was scared of us too by then. And he showed us the border. Exactly to the border and we crossed. And we got to Austria. That's how we started our lives in the West. Before we go on, during this time, the Hungarian Revolution happened. You were still in Hungary at that time, right? Right, right. And my husband felt very strongly against the Bolsheviks and um, had been on the streets and going to hot places. Um, He became, he was a very young man. We were about 23 years old. Okay, it's a long story, but they knew his name because there was an anti-government bulletin board where you could write an article and he wrote all sorts of articles and put it out on the bulletin board. They knew his name. It lasted for just a few days because the Russians came in with tanks. For young people with hardly any arms, very few arms, very difficult to find a Russian army, a Soviet army with tanks. So we decided to leave and we hired this little old man who showed us to the border and we crossed the border and we had a child. And he had a knapsack. Mm. I had nothing. I had a little knapsack. Both knapsacks were full of milk, baby food, diapers. We didn't know how long it was going to take. And we had a 13-month-old child. So we arrived to Austria with all our diapers and baby food and milk. 
not a second shirt for him, not a second pair of panties for me, nothing, nothing. The only so-called thing we had was a child. That's how we started our lives. I want to ask you something else before we talk about Austria. You were quite educated in Hungary, and I think you both became engineers. Is that right? Was that in Hungary? That was in Hungary. We both had an engineering degree, civil engineering. I'm a civil engineer. I worked very little because I have four children and I raised my family. The way my husband used to put it, we left Hungary with two things. We had an education and we had work ethic. No second shirt, but we had an education and work ethic. And we made it. We made it very well. We made it to Austria. We didn't spend one night in Austria because Peter had relatives in London. The Austrian camps were getting filled up. They took us by train from one city to another city. The camps were getting filled up and they started yelling on the train, anybody wants to go to England? Is there anyone who wants to go to London? And we said, here we are. We want to go to London. So we spent overnight in Austria. And next morning, they flew us to London. We were the very first airplane landing in London with Hungarian refugees. And then we sent all sorts of messages home. We couldn't call through Radio Free Europe and Voice of America, right? That was the name of it. We were there for about half a year. <clears throat> he, he got an engineering job there. And we stayed with these relatives who were wonderful with us. But we thought that the future wasn't then in England, where the economy really wasn't very good. Many British people left. So we signed up both to the United States and to Canada for a visa and decided we knew nothing about the Western world, nothing. And we decided that whichever came through first, that's where we'll go. The Canadian visa came first. Next day, we got the American visa. But by then, we signed up to be transported from London to Montreal. And we lived in Montreal for four years then. Both of us worked as engineers. We had another little girl in London. In Montreal. Doris. Doris was born in Montreal. You know Doris very well. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Right. And so you worked as, both worked as engineers in Montreal. So what brought you to Columbus? Peter wanted to get a PhD. Well, to be precise, I wanted Peter to get a PhD. And usually he did what I wanted, which was nice. <laughs> <laughs> he applied to, if I remember correctly, seven graduate schools. All of them accepted him. Ohio State was one that offered him a research assistantship, a job. We had to make a living somehow. And that's why he accepted that. And it was actually in Columbus where I wanted to get a job. I mean, we had two little children. We had nothing. We had absolutely nothing. I wanted to get a part-time job. And we didn't know anybody. Peter had a job by then. <clears throat> when we went to Columbus, he had the job. So anyway, from the yellow pages... I went from one architect to the next architect, offering my expertise, being a structural engineer. At one architect, it was a small firm, receptionist. I say my part 
that I'm looking for a job. She said, you don't need any secretaries. I said, I'm not a secretary. I'm a structural engineer, and I'm looking for a job. She goes in. The architect who owns the firm comes out, a young man, goes around me three times and says, I have no intention hiring you. I wanted to see something like you look like, looks like. I said, thank you. You and Peter, along with another partner, started a business, though. Yes, that was an interesting thing. Finally, I got a part-time job. It was a very small consulting engineer, a one-and-a-half man. No, it became a one-and-a-half man consulting engineering firm. He was the one man, and I was the half man. (laughs) Truly, there were two desks, and uh, I only worked for half a day. He was sitting at one desk. I was sitting at one desk. We did our work. And one day, Milton was his name. Milton, without telling me anything where he was going, disappeared. So I carried on as well as I could. And uh, he had been away for about three weeks. Then he popped up, did not tell me where he was, what he did. And we went on until three months later, again, he disappeared. And when this happened the third time, it was very difficult for me to carry on. I was inexperienced. I I did carry on as well as I could. I had lunch with an architect we worked for, and I told him, I said, what is Milton doing? Where does he go? He disappears. He doesn't tell me where he goes. Then he pops up, doesn't tell me where he had been. What is happening here? And he looks at me and says, don't you know? I said, no, I don't know. And he says, he's an alcoholic. He doesn't drink for a while. Then he starts drinking. Then he completely loses it. There is actually in Ohio, there was a farm, a detoxing place. He goes there, they detox him. He comes back and goes on with his life. So then we got a job that was a very complicated structure, so-called shell structure. Very few people know how to design something like that. An eggshell is very strong. You try to hold an egg and squeeze it. It's difficult to break it. Because of the structure, it's very strong. So there are structures called shell structures, and to design one of those is very complicated. We got a drive-in bank that was a shell structure. Milton couldn't touch it. I couldn't touch it. But I said, huh, here is Peter who wrote his dissertation for his PhD in shelf structures. He'll come in and help, which did happen. Peter came in and helped, designed it. Milton paid him like $4.25 an hour. They built it. Very shortly after that, another shelf structure. And Milton said, oh, Peter will design it for us. And he did. And then came a third one, and the mid-rise apartment house project as well, which was too much work for the two of us, one and a half of us. So your husband, Peter, was really recruited by you uh, to come in and... uh, I absolutely established the whole thing. (laughs) And what was built was Cordonemeth Engineering, which ended up one of Columbus's leading engineering companies with, as you say, 90, 90 engineers. It was only structural at the beginning, then it was structural and mechanical, and uh, 
everything else for a building rather than architecture. He did. Tell me how you, uh, how did you meet Peter? When did you meet him? We were classmates at the university. Uh, sure, you were one of the few women classmates at the university. I was one of the few women classmates. And then as the firm was being built, uh, you had four children, so you stopped working and, and built the family. Right. We had a very successful life. He was a very talented man, a very hardworking, very talented man. He was the smartest person I have ever met, which doesn't say much, but it is meaningful to me. Seems to me you've met a lot of smart people, so I think it says a lot. Right. And plus, he was a very good man, a very, very good man. We had been married for 65 years, plus some years while we were dating. Anyway, here is my life in a nutshell. He died in March. He got a major stroke. Actually, we had been playing bridge in somebody's home with a couple. And he said at one point, he complained about a very, very bad headache. He lied down on the sofa and there were very bad signs. And we called an ambulance. And that was when he got this massive stroke. There was nothing that could have been done for him, unfortunately. You've had to grieve for him during this pandemic. Right. And then lost your daughter during that time, your eldest daughter, the one that you left with from Hungary. Our oldest daughter also died. Edith, you were in Hungary during Nazi Germany and survived with the help of the nuns and felt lucky. You saw Hungary for what it is, occupied or controlled by Russia. After all of this and all that you've seen and all that you've navigated, what advice might you have for all of us? What advice might you have for young people today? Oh, I'm not that wise. I'm not that wise. I think education is very, very important. Education is very important and hard work. And uh, there are many things that are not that important, like playing uh, computer games. How do you think you kept yourself positive? How do you think you navigated all of this throughout your life to build the wonderful life that you had? My husband and I always set out to build a wonderful life. While living in Hungary and not having any hope of leaving there and uh, all sorts of bad, bad governments and communists and whatnot. We used to have a game, Peter and I, when we had an apartment in London, in an elegant area, and a country house in the British countryside that we furnished theoretically with furniture and drugs and silver and crystal and all that, having no hope at all forever leaving, but inside there was a little flame which said that maybe, maybe you can live your life differently than your life in Hungary. Hungary is not a good country. So during the toughest times, the most horrible times, you dreamed of a better life every step of the way. Every step of the way. And the other thing is that every step of the way, we did it, the two of us. 
Actually, I never thought of this English country house and London apartment and living there, which never happened, of course, until now, for years, for 50 years, (laughs) until I mentioned it to you. And I always, and Peter too, we, we liked good life and we liked nice things. And we tried to achieve a good life with nice things all our lives. And some we could do. Do you look back on it as a good life? I look back that it was a very good life. A very, very good life. And a successful life. Edith Korda, you are absolutely exemplary example of resilience. I think many people will be inspired by this story. And, uh, you know, as we meet the challenges of this pandemic, uh, to hear about your journey today um, and your positive feelings about the future for all of us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. We are so grateful to have had this opportunity to hear Edith Corda's remarkable story. Even during the greatest adversity, she has always said, I've been lucky. And that, my friends, is a true voice of resilience.